by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, do not count their sin against them for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Albert Bader for his last time in the recording studio. And we're going to see if we can't get uh, two Proclaiming the One episodes recorded today while he's here. I'm not sure that's going to happen. We're having some pretty pretty significant technical difficulties this morning as we're going. And uh, I'm not sure if we're going to let him talk out loud or not, but at least in visiting observer mode i don't know we have our uh, new vicar uh not installed yet but he will be on this particular day when we have these readings uh vicar daniel golden from upstate new york today we're going to be looking at the readings for the seventh sunday after trinity we are privileged to serve here at good shepherd lutheran church in lincoln nebraska we are very very thankful and thrilled that we have this radio opportunity through KNNALP 95.7 right here in Lincoln. Thanks for tuning in. Each week we take a look at the upcoming readings to help prepare for our worship time together, to be in God's house, to hear God's word, to receive God's gifts. Today on the seventh Sunday after Trinity, the introit is a portion of Psalm 47. Vicar, take it away. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud sounds, songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. All right, we have a lot of uh, throne talk. God is most high. We got some clapping and we got some shouting going on here. Uh, As soon as Pastor Moline gets back into his chair and puts his microphone on, I'll ask him a question. I told you we're we're doing double duty with the technical issues today, so um, I'm glad you can't see everybody running around like chickens with their heads cut off. But... um, (laughs) Yeah, there there you go. Um, Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to joy with loud songs of joy. Why? For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Pastor, um, 
What is this fear that the psalmist is talking about here today? Are we supposed to be afraid of God? Is this one of those places where we, we kind of wimp out and we say, oh, 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 no, we're not talking about fear. We're just talking about awe and respect. Is it both? Is it something else? What's going on here? Well, I don't want to pit fear and awe and respect uh, against each other. I mean, part of the uh, reason that we... Um, have fear uh, of a rattlesnake is the same reason that we have awe and respect for it. We don't just get too close and play catch with it or anything like that. They go together. The fear here is a part of faith. Uh, you know, the first commandment says we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, and that's the same sort of fear that's being here. And the reason we fear God is he could, uh, if he desired to, uh, send us to hell to torment forever or even uh, Beyond that, he could uh, vaporize us, cause us to cease to exist. He could take away all the things he provides to support our body and life. And so in that regard, uh, God is to be feared uh, because of his identity as God. At the same time, we know that's not what he wants to do with us. He wants to save us and bring us into his kingdom, and he does that through his son, Jesus Christ. So we also love and trust in him at the same time that we fear him. All these things go together in what we call faith, um, and that's kind of what this is talking about. Vicar, we have a uh, Bible passage in uh, Proverbs. uh, I believe it's repeated several times in the Psalms. I think it's alluded to, if not directly quoted, in uh, Ecclesiastes as well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How does this fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom teaching that's permeated all throughout Scripture connect us with the kind of fear that Pastor Moline just taught us about with regard to the king sitting on the throne. Are you afraid? Are you in awe? Yes. Yeah. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge is a great way to think about. And this, I think, too, would be uh, they're worshiping God here. You know, they clap your hands, all people, shout to God with loud songs of joy. And what do we do when we worship God? Uh, Really, we do nothing at all. Uh, We gather together in church on Sunday morning. We sit in our pews, and besides the part where we're speaking responsively back and forth or singing the hymns, we're quiet. The fear of the Lord is to be quiet before Him, to respect Him, to honor Him, to allow God to speak His Word to us so that we might have the beginning of wisdom so that we might come to understand who our God is, what he has done for us, how he has saved us from our sins. It's uh, never a good thing if you were to approach a king and try to lay out your own case before him or never let the king have an opportunity to speak because when he finally gets you to shut your mouth, uh, his judgment might not be what you want it to be. So we come before God in the proper fear and respect that he deserves as one who is our Lord and the one who could judge us to hell. We stand before him quiet so that he can speak to us his saving word. As, we are, uh, as we're looking here at uh, Psalm 47, we see that the king is on his throne and the people of God are responding to the fact that God is on the throne, God is our king, God is on the throne, they seem to be happy. Clap your hands, 
Shout with sounds of joy, sing praises to God, sing praises to our King, sing praises, sing praises with a psalm. It's just over and over and over and over again. Pastor, why are the people of God so excited to the point of singing? Because God is our King. Well, uh, hearing that word of God, God is our King, is a word of promise and a word of gospel. And if he's your king, that means he's on your side, which means this guy who is to be feared because he's all-powerful, omnipotent, uh, all-knowing, and the like, um, he's on your side. And that means this is the old axiom in history class and also in politics. um, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. God is your friend. And your enemies are now his enemies because he's your friend. Um, and so what's our enemies? Sin, death, and the grave. Uh, those who deny Christ exist. Um, those are the things that God is then uh, going to take care of because he's on our side. And that's good news for us because that means we don't have to take care of them. And uh, that's exciting for us. If death and the grave are our enemies and God's taking care of it, that means we have the promise and assurance that we'll live forever. As we look at many of the kings throughout history, even the kings that are recorded for us in Holy Scripture, as we think about many of the kingdoms that have risen and fallen through the, uh, through the annals of time, we see that many kings have been less than good. They've been evil. We see that many kingdoms um, that thought they were going to last for a long time did not. How is the kingdom of God different from the earthly kingdoms that we are used to seeing, thinking, examining historically? The kingdom of God will never come to an end. Uh, God has been king of all the world since the very moment that he brought it into existence. And we know for a fact that he will continue to be king of all the world because Jesus Christ, the one who lived, died rose again from the grave and ascended into heaven and now rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty forever. Because as Pastor Molinas said, he destroyed death forever. Death could not hold its bounds over him. And so we too will live forever with our true king. And it's a beautiful picture that we have because if God is king and rules over us, then that means that our enemies of sin, death, and the devil are not king and they will not rule over us forever. Uh, Pastor, when we uh, see in these lines here that God, our King, has subdued peoples under us and nations under his or our feet, what is going on here? That doesn't sound very gospely to me. That sounds uh, almost like mean or evil or wicked how does that tie into everything that we've talked about here that god is king for us well um when we start start to think of god as a king we also have to look at where he's coronated and i think maybe this will help put some things in perspective the place where jesus puts on his royal robes is at the trial before pontius pilate where they dress him in a purple robe and crown him in fact uh, with a crown of thorns He's then uh, elevated to his throne, which is, in fact, a wooden cross. He's nailed there. And uh, at that time, then, all people in all the world are subdued and underneath his feet.
feet uh, because of his position of authority and power. And so it's the crucified and risen Jesus that is the king spoken of here. And all the people are under his feet, meaning they're in his control and power, which is a good news because he acts then on our behalf, being under him. Uh, speaking a word to God the Father on our behalf says, uh, don't hold Poppy's sin against him, my blood covers it. Don't hold Bader's sin against him, my blood covers it. And so being uh, under his feet is actually kind of a good thing in that regard. Perhaps we can think of it in terms of Ephesians uh, as well, where husbands and wives, their marriage relationship, uh, submission and uh, the like, doesn't actually have to do with slavery or anything like that, but rather reflects our relationship with Christ, and that's the same sort of thing here. I remember years ago seeing some uh, pyramids, and I don't remember if they were Advent or Lenten pyramids, but it said, Our King, and King was spelled K-I-N, and then down a bunch was the G. So you could read it, Our King, or Our Kin, and Jesus is both. And I think that's really what we've been talking about here today with regard to how this can possibly be good news that God is our king. Most kings are evil, mean, wicked, and abusive. And yet our king sends his son to save the world. Thanks be to God. We need to take a short break. This is Proclaiming the One. We're looking at the readings for the seventh Sunday after Trinity. I'll be honest with you, I have no idea if you're going to hear any bumper music or not. We're going to try to put it on or add it in or whatever. And so if not, enjoy the silence. Otherwise, listen to the music. We'll be back after a short break. God's richest blessings in Jesus. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, almost Vicar Golden. We are privileged to serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship, 3825 Wildbriar Lane in South Lincoln. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for All Ages in Between. Wednesday evenings, year-round at 6.30. Great opportunity to hear God's Word and receive God's gifts. Today we're looking at the readings for the seventh Sunday after Trinity. I apologize, we're having some uh, technical issues in our recording process today, so the uh, bumper music may be uh, a little bit different or maybe even non-existent. We'll, uh, we'll find out what the finished product is, but... The Word of God remains and does not change. Vicar, Gospel reading for the seventh Sunday after Trinity, Mark 8, 1 to 9. And Pastor, I'm going to ask you the question before he reads. And the question is, is there any such thing as a minor miracle? Go ahead, Vicar, Mark 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered... And they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How, are, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, 
he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Okay, well, we've got a lot of issues going on here. And uh, the feeding of the 4,000 is sometimes ignored. Um, Well, compared to the feeding of 5,000, this is a minor miracle. You have people who attack the Holy Scriptures, God's Word, and say, well, this is an obvious um, mistake or accident. This didn't really happen. Somebody got their their numbers wrong, and uh, this feeding of the 4,000 is just kind of a weak imitation story account of the feeding of the 5,000. And after all, those things probably didn't happen anyway. Those are just kind of like miracles of multiplication. We don't want to get too much into the details. Let's take those issues one at a time, Pastor. First, a minor miracle. Is there any such thing? Uh, There's not in the scriptures. All miracles are amazing and uh, by the work of God. I suppose you could say there's minor miracles when... uh, you know, in West Virginia, a mine collapses and they rescue everybody out alive, but uh, not in the scriptures. There's no such thing. Okay. So God <laughs> in action. That joke bombed, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, when when I think of a minor miracle, I mean, and, and your uh, miners in West Virginia, uh, point well taken. Um, but it, it just clicked in my head. So thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, when... when uh, when I think of a minor miracle, it's a miracle that I don't even realize happened. You know, Your car when, started in the morning. When, when I'm stopped at a stoplight and not really paying much attention, and the pedestrian walks out in front of me, and I'm looking at my cell phone, and without looking up, I see the light turns green, I step on the gas, and nothing happens. Instead of committing murder... Um, you know, was that karma? Was that a coincidence? Uh, was that a miracle that God, the providence of God? And um, and I would not, I mean, can God work in those ways? Absolutely. But, uh, there's no word that's attached to there that actually says that he is. And, And any place where there is a miracle, like for example, our gospel lesson, they are clear and they are, uh, God's working in this world through, uh, extraordinary means and uh, we have in these cases a word attached to it that also teaches us about um, theology and so you know I would still not say there's any such thing as a minor miracle all miracles are major things where God intervenes in the world and I guess that's what I to be clear yeah and I think I think that's a good uh, I think that's a good distinction we have a clear word in the scripture we don't have to wonder if this was a coincidence or if this was God in action, like we do in our regular lives today. But we have a clear word from God saying this is God at work in a miraculous way. And uh, here we have this uh, feeding of the 4,000. Do you want to tackle the, the topic of uh, you know textual criticism or uh, people who would attack the Holy Scriptures with miracles like this? 
and and use this to try to try to somehow discredit God's holy word and say that it's less than inspired and inerrant? Well, textual critics would say it's the same miracle that just accidentally got recorded twice. And so when Mark was looking at the Q document and trying to put it together to uh, form his gospel, uh, he accidentally copied the same thing from two different sources and thought they were separate because there were details that were wrong. And um, that sounds really nice and uh, academic in our world today, but the reality is is that the people who wrote the Gospels were not dumb. And uh, they were very smart people, and they put everything that they put in the Scriptures uh, for a particular purpose and reason. Um, and uh, Mark was probably uh, working with St. Peter, who saw these events take place firsthand, and he's recording the things that St. Peter is telling him. And so to say that this is just a mistake where they accidentally recorded something twice would be uh, really intellectually dishonest to say that the people writing this in the beginning were um, that far removed from the events that took place. And so I don't think we can make that argument in uh, with a clear conscience. We can't make the argument with a clear conscience. We can't make it intellectually. We can't say that we believe that the Scriptures are authoritative in any way, shape, or form. If we say that the feeding of the 4,000 is anything less than the Word of God and a miracle of God, Oh, by the way, look at Mark chapter 6. Look at Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 30 in Mark chapter 6. You probably have a little title, subtitle in your scriptures that say, Jesus feeds 5,000. And Mark, everything that's happening in Mark, you know, the genre of Mark, everything is happening immediately, and it's big, and it's boom and boom, and look at the mighty power of God. And in 6, you got Jesus feeds 5,000, and then in chapter 8, you got Jesus feeds 4,000. He's just boom, boom. He's just doing his miracle stuff. That's what God is communicating to us. And anybody that would want to say that this miracle didn't happen or was some kind of an accident or came out of this mythical Q document or anything like that. Um, I, th- this, is, this is seriously undermining Christ and his word. There is no way that you can look at this miracle account and say that it was just accidentally recorded twice. Pastor first. Yeah, because, and first off, there's no evidence that suggests that. Um, the only evidence that suggests it is that you have two miracles where Jesus fed and uh, you build a straw man argument to say it's just a repetition or it's fake or anything like that, that's all based on nothing. It's an argumentum ad silentium. Uh, you also then have um, the reality that other places in Scripture say that um, all Scripture is God-breathed, which means the Holy Spirit's behind it all. And so then you're also accusing God of making a mistake, which is... Not a wise thing to do, uh, especially we talked about earlier, we ought to fear God because of who he is. So if you don't fear God, then you might accuse him of making a mistake. If you do fear God, then you take his word at face value. Amen. Amen. Vicar. Well, I was going to say, the what's the scary part about all this undermining the miracles is if we're going to start picking and choosing, you know, Thomas Jefferson, our early uh, American father, did this. He rewrote the whole New Testament and uh, left out every single miracle because... He didn't believe miracles could possibly happen. He's never seen it. He can't reason through it. So obviously it's not true, right? 
Well, if we want to take out the feeding of the 4,000, if we want to take out some of the other miracles like making a blind man see or healing a lame person, well, then we're eventually going to undermine the ultimate miracle of all, Jesus dying and rising again from the grave. And if we can't be certain about that, then our faith is in vain and futile, just as uh, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen. Can't remember. 15. 15? Yes. All right. So that's the main fear about this. If uh, we want to pick and choose what we believe and don't believe, instead of seeing this as God's word written for our instruction for the edifying of our faith, uh, we can tend to lose faith altogether. I've said this many times before, and I think it bears repeating here too, that whenever we come across a miracle in Scripture, we need to realize that two things are happening in addition to the details of the miracle. Two things are happening with every miracle. First, every miracle testifies to the fact that Jesus is no mere mortal. He is more than just a man, just an example, just a good teacher, just a rabbi. These miracles are above nature. That's what makes them a miracle. Only God can do this. And so every miracle is testifying to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, God in the flesh for you. The king has become our kin, to use what I uh, talked about in the first segment. The second thing is every miracle is a preview of coming attractions. And you brought up 1 Corinthians 15. If you deny one miracle, ultimately you're going to deny the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Flip that around. Every miracle points forward to the mother of all miracles. It gets us ready for the greatest miracle that the world has ever seen, the physical bodily resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ, from the dead on that first Easter. He died... He rose, and he is still alive, and he lives and reigns forever. Connecting us back to Psalm 47 and the kingly nature of God. We need to take a short break. You know what we haven't done yet, Pastor? We haven't really looked at the words of the Scripture <laughs> in Mark chapter 8, 1 to 9. We've talked all about it and all around it, and I think our hearers will be amazed that when we look at the actual words of Mark 8, 1 through 9, we will see that there is absolutely no way that you can see that this is an accidental re, uh, re recording of the feeding of the 5,000 because everything is different with one exception. Don't change that dial. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll be right back.
Sundays at noon on KNNA. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader, almost Vicar Golden, looking at the readings for the seventh Sunday after Trinity. In segment one, we looked at the introit, selected verses from Psalm 47. In segment two, we did kind of an overview of our gospel reading, Mark 8, 1 to 9. We looked at the understanding of... um, a minor miracle and what constitutes a miracle in Scripture. We talked about uh, Scripture critics that would uh, try to explain away certain parts of God's Word because they don't seem reasonable or logical. The feeding of the 4,000 in Mark is two chapters after the feeding of the 5,000, and so this is an easy mark for those who are critics of Scripture. But the one thing we haven't done yet is we haven't looked at the specifics of the text and uh, vicar i'm gonna i you know what i think i'm gonna do what's that i think i'm gonna let the new vicar talk and uh, i know this is a huge gamble because he hasn't even been officially installed yet but uh, i think i'm gonna let the new vicar read mark one to nine uh again and then we're gonna look at the actual words of the text but this way uh, you'll get a chance to hear his voice and uh, pray for him and all those kind of things that go with that and uh, on this particular sunday when we're going to be looking at these readings for the seventh sunday after trinity we will be installing our new vicar daniel golden from are you ready for this folks Horse Heads, New York. Uh, One word. Vicar Bader really wishes he came from a town called Horse Heads. Verms is pretty good, too. (laughs) (laughs) Makes me think of the Godfather movie. Uh, There you go. And uh, anybody under the age of 40 probably going to have to YouTube that to get the reference. Vicar Golden, take it away. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people. And he sent them away. Okay, so here we have the actual account, the words of the scriptures, Mark 8, 1 to 9, the feeding of the 4,000. Pretty good job, new vicar. We won't have to pray for you too much there. Um, There's absolutely nothing wrong with your voice that one or two cigars a week won't fix. But uh, we'll talk to your wife about permission for that one. Um, In those days when again... A great crowd had gathered. Pastor, again, what does that tell us about uh, 
the connection and the relationship between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of 4,000. Well, that's one of the things that tells you that whoever wrote this, Mark, wasn't just accidentally copying something else. He He's very aware that he has said it before, and he's aware that he's saying this here. And so in that uh, mindset, with that understanding, then we can see how this actually is two distinct separate events that's happening uh, and not just one event that's been recorded twice because that word, again, is there. And it's there in the Greek, too, pollen. Uh, and so... It does. It's not like just an English translation thing that's been added. It's in the Greek. It's recorded in the original. It's a separate second account. And uh, it ties in, you know, one of the things that's going on um, with regard to the early mission and ministry of Jesus as he's going around and teaching and preaching. We know from uh, the Gospel of Mark that there was a uh, kind of a plot with regard to Jesus. They wanted to force him to be king. Oh, Psalm 47. They wanted to force him to be king. And what kind of a king did they want? They wanted a bread king. And so it ties in with the, with the uh, understanding, the scheming of the people We're just going to follow this guy around. We're going to listen to some pretty good teaching. And guess what? We never have to work again as long as we live because this guy, Jesus, will do a little hocus pocus and uh, bread and fish will be there forever and ever. And uh, won't that be wonderful? Won't that be lovely? Pastor. It's worth pointing out as well um, the transition that happens here as well between Mark chapter 6 and then Mark chapter 8. We get the impression uh, from the beginning of Mark chapter 8 that this particular miracle is happening when he's in the region of Tyre and Sidon uh, and the area of the Decapolis, which are not the Jewish parts of the region. It's more the Gentile regions. The Decapolis were 10 cities just to the south and uh, mostly to the east of the Sea of Galilee where there was only pagans living. Tyre and Sidon uh, were the places where the Philistines had had their strongholds back in the day of old. And so uh, Mark 6, Jesus feeds Jewish Israel Israelites, uh, and in Mark chapter 8 here, the idea that it seems like is that it's actually he's feeding um, more of a mixed crowd at the very least. And most commentators, will, when they're comparing Mark 6 and Mark 8, make that Jew-Gentile connection as well. In Mark 6, he counts only the men which would be more of a Jewish way of counting people. And at the end of Mark 6, in this account of the feeding of 4,000, he counts 4,000 people, not just men. And so that ties in very, very well with what we're talking about here. Vicar, I want to ask you about one word. Jesus said unto them, I have compassion on the crowd. Compassion on the crowd. That is one of the one of my favorite funky Greek words and it just really teaches us so much about the person and the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Compassion. Give us a, a little bit of your commentary on compassion. Well, the word for compassion there is the Greek word splodgizomai. Uh, which literally means to have pity or have compassion. But uh, another word comes from this is 
uh, splognog, which is literally this gut-wrenching feeling. It's talking about something that you feel deep within your guts. It's uh, not just Jesus looking on this crowd and, oh, that's too bad, kind of like when you see, you know, the Humane Society commercials on TV and you feel so bad for the poor kittens and dogs that don't have a home, but as soon as the commercial's over, you forget about it and you don't do anything to help them. This compassion, this gut-wrenching feeling that he has for these people uh, makes Jesus act. Not only does he have compassion on them, does he have pity on them, but he's actually going to do something to help them. He's going to feed them a meal here. Pity in action. I think that's a really good way. And that spilling out of the guts, that's a great, that's a great word picture. Um, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. Um, is Jesus just concerned here? about the people's hungry bellies. What What is the compassion or the concern that Jesus has for these people, Pastor? Well, that's the immediate um, understanding is that Jesus is concerned that they don't have enough energy to make it back to their homes. Um, they, the way they would get there is they'd have to walk, and so they might have to walk 8 miles, 10 miles, 15 miles, 20 miles uh, just to make it home. And so um, this is one of the places where I think Scripture teaches what we confess in the Catechism, that God provides daily bread both to the good and to the wicked. Uh, and so we see that here, uh, God providing for all of them. But Jesus also is concerned uh, about their souls. That's the main reason that he's come. And um, so while he does this work of compassion and mercy, caring for their uh, physical needs, he's also concerned about their spiritual needs. The way that their spirit is fed then is uh, a little different. Uh, first off, what's he done for them several days out here in the wilderness? He's preached and taught to them. And we also have this uh, uh, language later on in this gospel lesson that does kind of also allude to the... Um, uh, the words of institution, and so uh, that also teaches us to look ahead to later on in the Gospel of Mark where Christ's body and blood is given in with an underbred wine to feed our faith uh, by the miracle of God. The uh, numbers of the bread and the fish are significantly different, Vicar, in the account of the feeding of 5,000 in Mark 6 and the account of the feeding of 4,000 in Mark 8. What are the differences and what difference does it make? Well, here in the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark 8, we have the seven loaves and the two fish. And then I'm looking here, yes, and they pick up seven baskets full at the very end. And uh, seven in the scriptures is a number of completion, a number of totality uh, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh he rested. It was totally perfect and complete in his action, and that's why we still have the seven days of the week today. And then in Mark 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, there are five loaves of bread and two loaves, or two fish, and they pick up 12 baskets full. And uh, five, when we think of five in the Old Testament, we normally think of the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of Moses, where it teaches us about God's saving action, how he created the world, how he rescued Noah and his family through the flood, how he called Abraham, how the 12 patriarchs started, all the history of Israel. 
which is significant also for picking up 12 baskets full of fragments afterwards, uh, signifying the 12 patriarchs of Israel or the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. So, Pastor, then, are these numbers just figurative, or are these numbers literal? Do they actually take place? Seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. Is that a figurative thing, or is this literal, or help us out? Well, I don't think that they are mutually um, distinct in that regard. I think they can be both Thank at the you. same time. Thank you. Very and good. And so... Literally, there were seven loaves of bread, and literally, uh, there was also seven baskets of leftover. Um, but there's also the figurative uh, numbers that are there as well. And the number seven then can help us, as we talked earlier about this, is in a Gentile area. According to Jewish teaching, there were um, seven Gentile nations. And so this taking place in a Gentile area also teaches us that God has compassion upon Gentiles. Good news for us, who are uh, most of us here in Lincoln, Nebraska, are descended from Gentiles. But you have the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, uh, the Jebusites, um, the Perizzites, and I can't think of the last one. Uh, there's seven of them, and so I've got six of them there, <laughs> and there's one more. But uh, those are the traditional seven tribes of the uh, Gentile nations, and so that number then is also significant in that regard. Okay. Uh, this is uh, Proclaiming the One, Pastor Moline, Pastor Poppy, Vicar Bader, Vicar Golden. We are uh, privileged to be able to bring you Proclaiming the One each week. We need to take a short ba- break. When we come back from our break, we're going to look at our epistle reading for the seventh Sunday after Trinity, Romans 6, 9 to 13. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Albert Bader, and our almost new vicar, well, I guess he is new, and he's almost a vicar, Daniel Golden. Um, we're privileged to serve the saints here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Please join us. You can listen every Sunday on KNNA 95.7 LP right here in Lincoln. If you're outside of our listening area, you can download the app, or you can check us out on the website, www.thecross957.org. We have uh, lots of things in our archives. You can check out the podcasts, all kinds of things, and uh, we'd love to have your feedback as well. Seventh Sunday after Trinity, we're looking at the readings. In part one, we looked at the introit from Psalm 47. In parts two and three, we looked at the Holy Gospel from Mark 8, 1 to 9. And now in our final segment, we want to take a look at our epistle reading, Romans 6, 19 to 23. The week prior, we also had some Romans 6, a lot of baptism talk at the beginning of the chapter. And so it's kind of a continuation reading here. Vicar? I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that last verse is certainly our money verse there. It is uh, the confirmation verse of many people. Some people would say that it is one of, if not the most beautiful passages with regard to a proper distinction between law and gospel. Uh, Wages, what you earn is death. Gift, uh, a bonus above and beyond what you don't earn, what you don't deserve, is eternal life. And not some kind of generic eternal life, but eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we get to that uh, money verse, Pastor, there's a lot of stuff going on in this text. Uh, before we get to that, that uh, concluding verse there, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, needing more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's a before and an after, um, a, a two-part thing that's laying, laid out here toward the end of Romans 6. And when you keep in mind what happens at the beginning of Romans 6, what is this contrast or these two parts or two ways that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us? Well, uh, the first way is the way that probably we're used to and that we kind of think the world works, and that's the way uh, of unfaith the way that um, we're our own God, or we've created a God uh, in our own image at least, and we live the way we want to live. The second way is the way uh, of faith, where we understand and believe that Christ has died for us and for our sins, and uh, therefore we live according to that. And uh, if we are in the faith and we live according to our faith, that means we do things that look like we're in the faith. Uh, Jesus talked about this himself in the Gospels, talking about fruit trees that bear good fruit and fruit trees that bear bad fruit or no fruit. We even have, uh, during Holy Week, Jesus uh, cursing a tree that didn't bear fruit the right way, teaching us this very same thing. And so that's kind of what this starting point is here uh, at this particular epistle lesson in Romans chapter 6. If you have the faith, uh, then you ought to live according to that, uh, in a way, presenting your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification or holy living. Vicar, I thought Lutherans were only concerned about justification and God's declaration of the forgiveness of sins, and that Lutherans couldn't care less about living a holy life, couldn't care less about sanctification, couldn't care less about doing a good doing good deeds. In fact, uh, some Lutherans throughout the course of history have said, Good works are detrimental to salvation. Uh, What is Paul teaching us here? And is this like contrary to what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess? Well, not at all. Uh, We certainly do make a big, big deal about the fact that we are declared righteous by God. That is, 
All of our sins are covered over because Jesus has shed his blood to pay for those sins. And uh, yet we're not going to go so far as saying good works are detrimental for our salvation. In fact, in the formula of Concord, we actually condemn as heresy that type of thinking. No, instead, when we have been so freely justified, so freely forgiven of all of our sins by Jesus Christ, now we can live in that forgiveness of sins. In living in that forgiveness of sins is doing the things that God requires of us to do with joy, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be good and faithful in our vocations, no matter what that might be, whether you're uh, being faithful in your uh, vocation as a husband or a wife or a child or a student or a police officer or whatever else you're called into, we can live these out and try to do so to the best of our possible abilities to show the world that we are those forgiven by Jesus Christ. Well, at the same time, we know that doing those good works, doing those good deeds, will not earn us salvation. In fact, every time we try with all of our heart, soul, and mind to do those good things, we're going to stumble and fall. We're going to do them imperfectly and imperfectly, imperfectly. I'm messing that up. But You had it gonna, right the first time. <laughs> okay. We're going to struggle, we're going to fall, and that's going to bring us back to God. We are going to repent of our sins, and our God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's really the whole part of the first part, first uh, few verses of Romans chapter 6, this dying to sin and rising with Christ, the rhythm and flow of the Christian life. This is baptismal talk. We are baptized into the death of Christ. We are baptized into the life of Christ. And what does such baptizing with water signifies? It signifies that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition drown and die with all of our sins and passions and evil lust and daily come forth a new man. A new man. That's what we're talking about here, what this new life looks like. Now, Pastor, uh, there's a, a, a quote here at the end in, of verse 22, and it says, uh, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. What does it mean that the end of sanctification is eternal life. Well, um, sanctification, maybe the easiest way to talk about it. I know there's many churches out there that teach wrongly about it, that um, it's up to you to live a holy life. And if you live holy enough life, then God will save you. Uh, that's false teaching, of course. Uh, God saves you through Jesus and Jesus alone. But the life of sanctification, then really, uh, all that means is it's a life of faith. Uh, when we have faith, we automatically do things that are uh, according to God's word and and uh, holy uh, in their in their outward works, anyways. Um, and the way that happens is just naturally. I mean, you're alive, right? Uh, and so, because you're alive, just like you talked about, you do things that living things do. You breathe, your heart beats. What do you What do you do to make that happen every day? Absolutely nothing. 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 It just happens because you are alive. The same thing with faith then. If you are made alive again in Jesus and baptism, your living new Adam, if you will, automatically does these good works without you even knowing. And so throughout your whole life this is happening and when you die uh, in the faith, sanctified, 
uh, justified altogether, then you are uh, entering into God's eternal kingdom in heaven. That last verse, Vicar, kind of sums up uh, Romans 6. It sums up the Christian life. It sums up what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sometimes people will look at the Lutheran church and say that uh, Lutherans are kind of morbid. We talk about our sin. We talk about death. We talk about these kind of things freely and openly and almost as if uh, it's not that big of a deal, almost as if we're, we're laughing or mocking death. Um, how might you respond to somebody that would uh, critique Lutheranism that way? Well, I would say that we have to talk about these things because we do know that we are freely justified by Christ Jesus our Lord. And at the same time, uh, we are saint and sinner. And it's a mysterious thing, just as uh, Jesus Christ being true God and true man is a mysterious thing that we can't comprehend besides with faith. So to say that we talk about these things often and we're almost a little morbid, well, we have to do that. Because we have to constantly remind ourselves and those listening that we are still truly sinners. Uh, we still, while we live our lives here in this world, can fall away from the faith if we starve ourselves by not going to God's house, by not hearing God's word, by not receiving God's gifts. And so we talk about these things openly and freely, and yet living in the confession of our sins, that is, living in our baptism, confessing our sins, and receiving absolution, we can talk about these things and not ultimately fear them, but we can say, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your our O victory over the grave? I'm screwing that up now. <laughs> but we can speak about these things openly to remind us that we are sinners. And we confess our sins, and we know that God, who has sent his son Jesus to forgive our sins by cleansing us with his blood, does exactly what he says he does, truly forgives us so that we truly do have eternal life. Uh, you had a good rebound there, Vicar. So <laughs> um, as, uh, as many of you know, by the time you're hearing these words, Vicar will be back in Fort Wayne and uh, continuing on with his fourth year of study at the seminary. We, uh, we've had a great year. And uh, it's been a great blessing to have uh, Vicar Albert Bader from Verms, Nebraska, to be our vicar this year. We, uh, we rejoice with uh, Vicar and Gretel and uh, little Dawson, who's scared of my voice, that uh, it's, it's been great. You'll always be part of the Good Shepherd family. And uh, come back. I know you got family really, really close. But when you come back to Nebraska, come see us. Because we've been your real family for the last year, and I promise that God will uh, will bless that time together. Pastor, uh, any any words of uh, farewell or encouragement for uh, young Vicar Bader? Uh, no, uh, beyond study hard at school, uh, stay humble, and know that uh, uh, God will place you into. Uh, the office of the Holy Ministry according to His will and use you according to His will. And uh, we pray it's somewhere nearby and that uh, the Word may be faithfully proclaimed to you and someday we'll be with you forever in God's internal kingdom. And that's the good news we have as Christians. Goodbye is never really goodbye forever. It's just uh, see you later. Amen.
Amen. Vicar, we'll give you the last word, collect of the day for the seventh Sunday after Trinity. Let us pray. O God, whose never-failing providence orders all things both in heaven and on earth, we humbly implore you to put away from us all hurtful things and to give us those things that are profitable for us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline, I am Pastor Poppy, along with outgoing Vicar Bader and incoming Vicar Golden. Tune in again next week to Proclaiming the One. And when you get up on Sunday morning, I would just encourage you to read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, and go to your ch- go to church where God will feed you with his word, his bread, most holy. God's richest blessings in Christ.